Our scripture this morning is taken from Second Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Peter writes, Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. In our study today, Peter is expressing once again the necessity that he senses to help believers create a partnership in the divine nature. A term that Peter uses under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to guide us in the area of developing spiritual maturity of our growth and of our service to our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's determined that these principles are to have priority in the lives of those that he has opportunity to address before his decease, as he says in our King James text. These principles Peter enforces are not based on cleverly worded or cleverly humanly designed phraseology, but upon truth as it comes from the throne of God. Peter gives testimony to being an eyewitness to that nature, and while we are looking at the principles that are to be developed in our lives day by day in order that we might achieve that Christ-likeness in our attitude and in our actions day by day, we are, it's necessary for us to understand those seven basic principles. But then next week, we're going to move into an examination of that nature as Peter was an eyewitness to it. So here, he is reaffirming the necessity for us to develop those seven basic principles in order that we might grow up into Christ and be like Christ in the way we think and therefore in the way that we behave. So he begins in verse 15 by saying, Moreover, moreover is better translated in the grammatical structure here, indeed as he emphasizes the importance and the necessity that he both feels and that he wants to convey to you and to me as to the structure of our lives and the way we are to behave ourselves, of course, is dependent upon the way that we think. And so he ties those two together in the developing of these seven basic principles that we have been looking at. Indeed, he said, I will endeavor. Spudiso is better translated, I will be diligent. 
And we have to remember that Peter recognizes that he is in the closing years of his ministry and that his time of departure has already been identified by the Lord Jesus Christ and yet to be revealed to him, but it's been revealed that it's in the process. So he said, indeed, I will be diligent also. He is going to impress upon us then in this text not only the importance of understanding the principles and adopting them, but of modeling them as he has recognized that he is to set forth the example of those things as well as to teach them. Indeed, I will be diligent also. It's always encouraging to hear that the one doing the preaching is also going to and is involved in the practice. I remember hearing years ago about two doctors that lived in a boarding house, two Dr. Johnsons. One was a medical doctor and the other was a theologian. Got a telephone call one day and the landlady answered the phone and the party on the other end said, I'd like to speak to Dr. Johnson. So she said, do you want the one that preaches or the one that practices? So hopefully in our lives, it will be both a preaching and a practicing of these principles. We learn more from what people do than we do from what they say. We learn a lot about the people who say by what they do as well. And so I point you to Peter, not me. I point you to Peter uh, this morning and the example that he set. And of course, that should be one that we are following. Indeed, I will be diligent also. And then in our English text, it says, I will be diligent also that you may be able. The word order is different in the original language. I would remind you that the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek. And the placing of words and the arrangement of words in the Greek language was a very vital part of understanding what was being said because it was the form of punctuation that they had. Uh, there was no punctuation in Koine Greek for many, many years. The language is structured in such a way that it defines for us what punctuation might simplify for us. But word order is quite important. And this phrase that you is actually out of place here in the text. The text actually says, indeed, I will be diligent. I didn't get any help, Alder. I will be diligent that, not that you may be able, but I will be diligent also, may be able that you, he words, the word or changes the wording which seems strange to us in English, but very profound in Greek to emphasize the fact that his diligence relates not only to himself, 
but he places that term Hamas, that you, he places it behind the being able to maintain a purpose for causing you to be diligent. He places that emphasis upon his recognizing the necessity that his diligence is not only in practicing these seven basic principles, but his diligence is to maintain along with you a purpose of causing that you, after me, then might follow and find that pattern. The statement that you may be able, or literally that may be able you, (laughs) as we have it in uh, the original language, that statement is actually an infinitive, and I point that out uh, not to bore you with grammar, but to embrace the idea that this is set forth as a purpose. The use of the infinitive denotes a purpose. Peter's purpose is one that he wants to share with us, that we might have that same purpose as well. To maintain along with you a purpose of causing that you, after my decease, might then continue to walk in this way of life and to practice these seven basic principles that you might be able to serve and live out the design that God has for you day by day. He said, uh, it's my purpose and is to be your purpose for us to maintain together this purpose of living out this plan that God has set forth by following these seven basic principles. He says, uh, after the specific decease. When we look at that word decease, we recognize that's a good English word for talking about the death of one. But Peter approaches it a little different in that he does not use the word decease. That's the word the King James translators inserted. The word is exoda, from which we get the English word exodus. He said, after my exodus, (laughs) that you would continue to make it your purpose to follow these principles, live out this design, My exodus is approaching. To refer to his departure as an exodus is to give us uh, an understanding of the technical thinking that was going on in the mind of the Apostle Peter. He was well familiar as as, as a Jew having been raised under the law. He was well familiar with the exodus that took place in Egypt when at the appointed time God sent Moses and delivered the children of Israel out of bondage 
and slavery to the Egyptians. We use that term, Moses was sent to deliver the people out. He was there to lead in their exodus. And so Peter uses this word exodus here in a very potent way to reveal to us his understanding that he was going to decease, but he wasn't just going to die. Rather, he was going to be delivered from bondage into the very presence of the Lord. The exodus of Peter was his deliverance out of this temporary body, out of the turmoil and the affliction for Peter, out of the persecution that he experienced as a result of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was about to be delivered and he wants us to make it our purpose as it is his purpose that after his exodus, after he has been led out, after he has uh, been delivered uh, from this life into eternity itself, that we are to have these things in remembrance. To have is translated from the word ekin. It's an infinitive also denoting purpose that we are to continue to have as a matter of our purpose these things at all times in memory. These things, of course, refer back to our study over the last several weeks where we have seen Peter addressing the basic principles that will enable us to live the Christian life effectively and to experience all that God has designed for us in this life before we too have an exodus and are led out in uh, into eternity and away from the bondage and the hardships that we experience in life today. So verse 15 should read thusly. Peter says, Indeed, I will be diligent also to maintain along with you a purpose of causing that after you, after my exodus, continue to have as a matter of purpose those things at all times in memory. Those seven basic concepts that are to be applied in our daily walk, Peter says, I'm about to be delivered. Not I'm about to be executed, but I'm about to be delivered into the promised land. And I have as my purpose that you make it also your purpose that after I have been delivered and you pick up the mantle that you remember, hold in your memory all these things. He says that you have these things, that's these seven basic principles, that you have them always, literally at all times, in memory. That word memory is also a technical word 
that establishes uh, for us a framework from which we can operate in living our life day by day. We are to know the Word of God. We are to know those principles that Peter is teaching and always have them in memory. Not in the back of our mind where the cobwebs might have already gathered over things that we have already forgotten, but to be alert at all times not to have learned them or to have known them, but to have them operating in your mental processes day in and day out. He moves on then in verse 16 to say, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Reason for holding these things in your conscious memory. Things that you are mindful of, not things that are tucked away in the back fold of your brain somewhere in a file cabinet, but that is out in your usable memory, your active memory. Because that which Peter has instructed us in and is continuing to instruct us is not based on cunningly devised fables. We identified several times over the past several weeks and we will continue to identify several times over the next several weeks those seven basic principles because I along with Peter am charged with reminding you to keep them active in your memory. And we will do that if we understand that it is the Word of God, it is the design of God, it is the instruction of God, it is a Word from God, it is the message that God has given us and is not developed around cunningly devised fables. All preaching, all teaching, all of our study of the Word of God ought to be based on the Word of God and not upon cunningly devised fables. Cunningly devised. That word, sophos menos, is actually a compound of two words with a prefix on it. The word sophos relates to having understanding of how to apply the knowledge that you have to the experience that you encounter. How to apply what you know to what circumstances develop in our life. That's one of the words that is used here by Peter to form this single word. Another word that he incorporates with it is the word menos, which means to abide comfortably. So, He's talking about having a comfortable abiding with the understanding of how to apply these seven basic principles to your life. 
so much in one word is overlooked if we simply hit the word remembrance and move on. But he's talking about having in your conscious mind these seven basic principles. And they are abiding actively in your usable memory. And as they are abiding there, they are abiding comfortably. You have accepted them. They're not contrary to what you really believe. They are they are in agreement or you are in agreement with what they say and therefore they are usable in your life at this particular point. He said, Peter said, we as disciples, as apostles, have not made it a principle to follow our own as our objective to work out some clever devised schemes or ideas or thoughts or fables. But rather, this is the Word of God that came to me and I am passing it on to you and it's my endeavor that in passing it on to you, you may have it in your memory operating. This is the Word of God. What we believe determines our behavior. Not what we know, but what we believe determines our behavior. And what we believe is determined by each of us by a set of standards that relate to truth that we may have developed for ourselves. And so it's important to know this is what the Word says. This is not the doctrine of Peter. This is not the doctrine of Paul. This is the Word of God that is being taught by Peter and Paul. And we need to understand the source. Documentation is vital for me, when it comes to the concept of accepting or believing. Don't tell me something is. Show me the proof that that is. And certainly, that relates to the Word of God. It is that that motivated me as a, as a pre-teener uh, to get into the language of the Bible to understand what God said. I don't want someone else's opinion what it means, and you ought not either. We, What we desire and should have is the documented Word of God that is relative to us that we can apply to our lives day by day. There were, There are today a lot of cunningly devised fables that circulate under uh, the authority of various churches today, of various groups. And when you ask for documentation on those things, then we find that there is a walking away from it or a backpedaling on it. We need to know 
that these principles that we are going to observe are founded upon the Word of God, that they are in fact the Word of God. Not cleverly worked out applicational principles that are based on fabrications as opposed to truth. Peter said, when we made these known unto you, it was through the power of God and through the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word power is the Greek word dunaman. Yep, that's the word from which we get our English word dynamite. It's a natural, inherent power. And it's the word that is used to describe the working of the Spirit of God with the Word of God in our life that gives us a natural, inherent ability to live the life because we have that dunamis power in us. It is given to us at salvation. And this dunamis power, this natural inherent power, is given, as Peter identifies it, to him. And then in other texts, he identifies to every believer this power is given we simply need to allow it to operate in our life. And it never operates apart from the Word of God. It is that natural inherent power that is wrapped up in the whole of Scripture and in the revealed plan of God. He said, We've not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power of God. But then he adds not only the power of God, that natural inherent power that enables us to walk the walk as well as talk the talk, that gives us the ability to live out these seven basic principles, but the the encouragement to do so because the coming of the Lord is real. Now notice in verse 15, Peter talked about my departure, my exodus, my deliverance from the bondage of this life and this body into the presence of God, into the promised land. And now he talks about Christ's coming. The word coming is translated from the Greek word parousia. This is not a reference to the coming of the Lord. This is the parousia. And so we need to understand how it relates. It is a reference to the Lord's coming, but not at the rapture of the church. The word coming, as I said, is inadequate to express the meaning of parousia. The word parousia incorporates the idea of arriving with a continued and manifest presence. The arrival and manifestation of the presence 
of the Lord. Now bear with me. It incorporates that idea then of a continued manifest presence. The transfiguration of Christ is described by this particular word. Remember in the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus took with Him upon the mountain Peter, James, and John. And the Bible says He was transfigured before them. The word is parousia, before them. We find that He met with Elijah and Moses up there on the mountain. And the Scriptures tell us that the appearance of Jesus was modified so that the deity that He truly was became dominant and visible to Peter, James, and John beyond His humanity. His appearance was modified so that His deity became visible. Knott's Berry Farm in Southern California years ago, was a berry farm. (laughs) And uh, they decided to build a ghost town around it as an attraction to try to get folks to come and eat their chicken dinners and and buy berries from their berry stand. They had a chapel there in those early years. It was free admittance to uh, Knott's Berry Farm. Today it's become an amusement Park, uh, way beyond the scope that Mr. Knott had in mind, according to his own words. But uh, they they had a little chapel in that area that you could go into free. And you went into this chapel, and they closed the doors, and it was pitch dark, pitch black in there. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And then slowly at the front of the building, the light began to become visible and there were some closed doors that were there from the floor to the ceiling. And as you sat there, those doors were opened and there was a much larger than life picture of Jesus standing there. And in the background, the reader was reading a historical documentation by Lentius, a supposed writer from the day of Christ. I said supposed. I lack the documentation for that. But he was reading the artist's description of Christ. And as the figure stood there, the eyes were closed and there was a radiance that began to come out of that picture and the eyes began to open. And uh, it was an interesting experience. 
it was an attempt to identify the transfiguration of Christ when he was on the cross. And for 15 cents, you could buy a little take-home folder that you could expose to the dark or to the light and then close up. And then in the dark, you could open it and have your own little version uh, of that. But if the, the radiance of the divine they attempted to amplify in that presentation. I thought they did a pretty good job of illustrating for us what the Scripture says about the transfiguration of Christ. That is the parousia of Christ. So, Peter is talking about his being taken out of this in an exodus and he's basing his encouragement to you and to me upon the reality of the not only the natural inherent power of our Lord Jesus Christ, but his coming. No, it's his parousia. Yes, he's coming. We've studied that. We spent a year looking at the prophecies related to that. He's coming to to take out the church in an exodus from this earth. But that's not what Peter has in mind here. He has in mind the transfiguration of Christ where the deity of Christ became visible to Peter, James, and John as they were up on the mountain with an appearance also of Moses and Elijah, and identifying that this is our role as Christians. We are to represent, we are to become a means of amplifying and making visible the parousia of Christ. The nature of our lives is to be of such that it reflects Christ in His divine appearance. Paul wrote this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This transformation is to be the experiential objective of every believer in the church age. However, this manifestation will become an ultimate reality when the rapture occurs. And at that moment, we are transformed. We are changed in a moment. And that's recorded for us as well as a parousia in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. Paul said, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, that word should be, precede them which are asleep. 
For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. At that moment, we are going to be changed. Our mortality is going to be replaced with immortality. Our corruptibleness is going to be replaced with incorruption. But we ought not to just put things on hold till we get there. Our objective, according to Peter's preaching here, is that we might magnify that Christ's likeness in our life day in and day out as a believer. That our parousia, our transformation, is to be occurring now as well, where we are to take on the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk a little more about that next week as we look at it, but Peter simply says, but we were eyewitnesses to that transformation and to His majesty at that point. That's what we need to see in the lives of believers, Peter says, is what Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. There needs to be a a manifestation of the deity. The one who lives in us as born-again children of God. So verse 16 says this, For we did not make it a principle to follow out as our objective cleverly worked out applicational principles that were based on fabrication as opposed to truth when we made known to you the natural inherent power and the parousia of the Lord of us, Jesus Christ. But we were as a matter of principle made eyewitnesses of the sovereign greatness and dignity of that one. Peter introduced at the beginning of this epistle seven basic principles which when applied to our lives would be called, would cause us as believers to come become partners in the common nature. In the parousia. There needs to be an aspect of the divine touch of God upon our lives visible to those around us. That becomes possible as we make these seven principles a guideline. We are to develop a morality that will give credibility to our lifestyle. That morality that gives that credibility only comes as we are controlled by the Holy Spirit. When our sins have been acknowledged and we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, His 
dynamite power, his dunamis power and his parousia presence becomes visible in varying degrees in our life. That must be developed within the sphere of faith. Everything is first developed in faith. Our reliance or dependence upon what we find in the Word of God. And within that, we are to develop that that morality, that spirit-controlled life. Because it's within that spirit-controlled life that we are able to develop a process for studying the Word of God, understanding the Word of God, and knowing how to make application of it to our lives. That knowledge of the Word of God gives us the ability then to develop a self-controlled will. Taking the power away from the devil that made me do it, and recognizing now we have authority in our life, and uh, it's a matter of choice. Within that development of a self-controlled will, we are to develop a contentment, a contentment regardless of the circumstances. Might I say, that contentment that is manifested on the part of believers is one of the most visible aspects of the divine nature, of the parousia, of the magnification of the deity of Christ in our life as we visualize that before others. Within that contentment, regardless of our situation, we are to develop then a consistency of duty to God that is characterized by our desire to serve Him to do what He desires rather than ourselves. And within that consistency of duty, of doing God's will, we are able to develop a responsive love, a brotherly love toward others. And then within that sphere of a responsive love, we are able to go a step further and develop a self-sacrificial love that manifests itself in giving and continues regardless of the response. By applying these principles, we are able to become partners in common in the divine nature that was manifest at the transfiguration of Jesus. By following these principles, we're able to experience in a small way but able to experience during our life here that permanent transformation that will occur at the rapture, we can experience that to a degree before it occurs. First Thessalonians chapter one or chapter four, verses fifteen through seventeen we read, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul enlarges upon that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
we pick up at verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and when this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In this second epistle of Peter, Peter explains to us about being an eyewitness to that transformation in the humanity of Jesus where that deity became visible. It's important for us to look at that and to understand that so that we might understand the change of the transformation that needs to be occurring in our life. The visibility of God living in us to others and the mechanics for doing that are these seven basic principles that Peter sets forth here. Well, there are other approaches to it, but we're looking at Peter's approach to developing a partnership in that divine nature. So next week we'll look at that as he explains it further. But, of course, it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We are to be creating a partnership in the divine nature. And these principles, I hope you're looking at them throughout the week. Remember, they're to be in our active memory and attempting to make that application for it is in that that you magnify Christ to others And you find peace and purpose in your life as well. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that we will truly make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That we'll hide its words in our heart. That we might put on that divine nature that we might exemplify to others that which is found in the Word, in the attitude, and in the actions of our own life. For we pray so in Jesus' name. Amen.